0: Hi, everybody. Thanks for downloading the Third Coast podcast. I'm Katie Mingle. No resound today, but we do have a very special feature for you coming up. Um, Yeah, because of rights issues with the BBC, if you want to hear this week's resound, you'll have to listen on the air. It's a documentary about Bob Dylan and the women who influenced him. It doesn't at all pass the Bestel test, but it's still really good. Hear that on WBEZ Saturday the 23rd at 1 or next Wednesday, the 27th, at 10 p.m. Stream it on wbez.org if you aren't in the Chicago area. It's worth hearing. Also, Third Coast just began our end-of-the-year fundraiser. We have a goal of $27,000 to end the year in the black. And honestly, to get there, we're going to need each and every last fan of this podcast to pitch in a little something, whatever size something you feel good with. Do that at our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Okay, today we bring you an episode of the budding new-ish podcast, Everything Sounds. Producers George Drake Jr. and Craig Shank say that Everything Sounds is a podcast and short-form radio program exploring the role of sound in art, science, culture, and our everyday lives. Each program aims to highlight people, places, and ideas that expand our understanding, Of the power of sound. This week's episode highlights just such a place and just such a person. George and Craig set it up quite nicely, so I'll just get out of the way now and let them talk. All right, here's everything sounds
1: Ignition sequence
2: start. Everything. Everything. Sounds. Sounds. This is Everything Sounds. I'm Craig Shank. And I'm George Drake Jr. This is Everything Sounds.
3: March 10th, 1876 will always be one of the most historic days in American history. It was the day that one of the most important inventions of all time was first tested by two men in Boston.
1: During the months that we were working together on this telegraph, Bell often spoke to me of another invention he had in his mind. It was the
2: telephone. That's Thomas A. Watson. And of course, he's speaking about Alexander Graham Bell in 1926. Watson was Bell's assistant, and the two of them were the first to transmit one entire sentence to each other while they were in the same building over the telephone.
1: Bell sat in front of the new transmitter in the back room which I had made into a laboratory for him on the top floor of number 5 Exeter Place, Boston, and I went down the hall to the front room to listen for the results with a telephone receiver.
3: That's when something happened, not to the phone or the phone call, but to Bell.
1: As Bell was about to speak into the new instrument, a motion of his arm upset over his clothes, a battered jar of acidulated water. In the excitement of the accident, Bell called out to me, Mr. Watson, come here! I want you!
3: And there it was, the first sentence to ever be sent by telephone.
1: The big mouthpiece picked up his call for help, and I heard every word of it through the receiver at my ear. The new transmitter was better than we expected or had dared
2: hope. Now phone calls happen billions of times a day across the globe. But today's show isn't about phones. It's about something associated with the phone that has fundamentally changed the world. And it's something that people truly take for granted. Watson even mentioned it before.
1: The big mouthpiece picked up his call for help.
2: Or as we know it today,
3: the microphone. In modern phones, they're smaller than most insects, but think about how different life would be without the invention of the microphone. No sound in movies, no recorded music, and if you went to a concert, you would need to be silent or the
2: performers would need to be incredibly loud. Without the microphone, the world would be a much different and, in a way, quieter place. And there's one guy who understands the importance of microphones probably more than anyone. He's been collecting them for over half a century, and he's also been the driving force behind a microphone museum in Milwaukee. His name is Bob Paquette.
4: I'm Bob Paquette, I own Select Sound Service where this
3: museum's located. And he runs the Bob Paquette Microphone Museum. He's one of those guys that has a collection and loves to talk about it with everyone that he can. It's not a bad thing. He's genuinely excited about what he collects. Although he began collecting in 1958,
2: it wasn't until 1970 that he opened up his collection to the public. No matter who walks through that door, he'll talk with them about his collection for as long as they want to stay. He's a super nice guy with a passion for microphones. So much so he wrote and compiled an 840-page book about the history of microphones. What began as a reference book for himself is now available for sale on the museum's website.
4: Just about anything I could put in here that I thought would be of interest to people collecting because it shows all the different... Uh, spec sheets, it shows a lot of things you'd never find anymore today.
2: He visited the research section of the local library for years, gathering information about the history of different microphones by brand, type, and country of origin.
4: Today, if I would have had the internet, I could have done it in about a year. You know? <laughs> this was really doing a lot of digging and all kinds of stuff. You had to transpose to other <laughs> medias and so on.
3: His fascination with microphones started when he was a kid. He quit school at 16 and got a job at a local business setting up audio equipment for rallies during the war.
4: Big arena shows, you know, they set up portable sound systems and so on.
3: And that's when he began to work with microphones.
4: And uh, that's where I started. But I ended up working on microphones quite a bit because we would repair them. And uh, eventually, when that company closed, they sold it to somebody else. And I ended up with an old 20s microphone that they had a double-button carbon. And uh, then I wanted to know what everything was like before that, so I just got into that.
3: A few years later, he started his own sound company in the basement of his house. He kept it there for eight years and was able to move to a bigger location. And from there, an even bigger location where he could not
2: only display his collection, but he also expanded it. Bob has got thousands of microphones.
4: Probably closer to 3,000.
2: But there are some that he's missing from the collection. Those are shown by empty mic stands where they should sit on the shelf, which is arranged chronologically and by manufacturer.
4: And I built, a, a, my office became shelves and I started showing it from then on. Then it just kept getting bigger and bigger. When I bought this place, I built this room and then just kept adding on, going backwards. So it gets bigger and bigger every year. But live another 10 years, you'll come back and interview me again. <laughs>
2: Before we go any further talking about the microphones in his collection, we want to clear something up about how many of his microphones actually work.
3: Bob agrees that one common misconception about older microphones, and most standard microphones in general for that matter, is that they're essentially an electric version of the human ear, which isn't entirely accurate. They do pick up sounds, but the human ear has special skills.
4: You know, a lot of people would call us and they'd say, just bought a big Ampex recording system, and it, the mics are no good. Can you rent us mics? I says it's not the mics. I says my guess is you're, you got 12 people at a table and you got one mic in the middle. She says yeah. I said, it doesn't work that way. The main
3: difference is that the human ear is selective. With our ears, we're able to hear sound from numerous sources and exclude those elements that we don't want to hear in order to focus
2: in on that one thing that we do. Most microphones aren't designed to do that. Let's say you're talking to a friend at a table in a restaurant, and you set one of his microphones in the middle. Like he said, it wouldn't be able to pinpoint only what you want it to record. Your friend will blend in with the rest of the sounds in the restaurant. But as humans, we're able to focus in on that one element, her voice in this instance, and ignore all of the other sounds in the environment.
1: Nothing. Get into playing, hold it for a minute and a half, and he looked at me with a stink eye and I said, that's right, I'm the teacher.
4: You try putting it on mono on earphones and listening, you can't tell, you can't separate them at all, because just the way sound works, you know.
3: Around the time that microphones first started being used regularly for performances and speeches, such as presidential addresses, the technology wasn't quite what it is today. The president wouldn't have just one or two microphones at the podium like we usually see now.
4: It used to be, they were just loaded. Everybody clipped on microphones and it looked like a mess.
3: They made something new. One stand with six microphones positioned in a long horizontal line.
4: Back in 25, was this? Yeah, Coolidge gave a talk, but they, Gave every group there, the networks and so on, one of the mics. And then they just uh, had a feed to it and they'd plug it into their system for recording.
3: Bob doesn't have an original, but he did make his own replica.
4: So I made a replica of that because uh, that was one of the first things they ever did to try to clean up the mess.
2: When microphones were still a reasonably new technology, performers were a bit uncomfortable being near them. When a lounge singer would step up to the piano, they wouldn't touch the mic, let alone come close to it.
4: People were afraid to get up close to the mic. And typically, this is a double button carbon mic. Now, what they do is there's carbon grains in those cups. And when this is just sitting idle, it kind of sounds like in the background real slow hiss.
2: There was a widespread fear concerning the dangers of electricity in the late 1800s and early 1900s due to its use in executions.
4: And you'd hear about uh, people being electrocuted in the penitentiaries and so on, and electricity was dangerous if you didn't know something about it.
2: When people would step up onto the stage, they wouldn't be standing in front of a mic. They'd be standing in front of a mic with a lampshade on it.
4: They would tell the people, go by the piano and sing towards the lampshade. (laughs) You can get any, you know, in 1920 when those came out, and you'd always use them in pairs, you know, for redundancy in case one quit working. And this is about as close as you can get anybody to go near that. They see three wires hanging off of each one of those, and they wouldn't go near it. And that's what those are. Those are housings, too, so that uh, they don't see the microphone. They don't feel, hey, there's a problem, you know.
3: Not only were microphones perceived to be dangerous, they were also enormous. Decorations were sometimes added to make them a bit more appealing, or depending on where they were going to be used, sometimes they'd hide them entirely. One of the things that stands out most in Bob's museum is a large candelabra in the middle of the room.
4: That's a funeral home, Mike.
3: That's right, a hidden microphone for a funeral home.
4: Well, when they would do the real big, let's say, a. The mayor died in the city. They, they rented an auditorium. And usually, there was a platform that's maybe three feet up. Well, that would sit in front of the platform, and they'd have a podium, so that would come up in front of them. And uh, in fact, that's how Turner started. They were in the funeral home business, and they developed the sound system for funeral homes.
3: Later, Bob found out that the funeral mic was actually part of a set. And if you're a bit squeamish about morose anecdotes, now might be a good time to turn the show down for about 25 seconds starting now
4: i hit there was a big collector in chicago ralph muckow dr muckow he had a big radio collection he came here one day and he saw that he says you want the matching unit to that and i said what's a matching unit He says looks just like it only there's a fan instead of a mic and they put it in the coffin and in the summer to blow flies off <laughs> and i said no it's a little morbid for me i don't need that <laughs>
2: Out of the thousands of microphones he has and has seen, there's a kind of microphone which Bob has never been able to track down or even find online. Microphones that have rarely been photographed known as the Turner Color Tones. From what Craig and I know, they came in a variety of colors, including yellow, green, and orange. The design is pretty unique, kind of an art deco look, a large fin which goes from the bottom to the top, and it's just kind of weird looking. At the time, they were incredibly unpopular. But from a present-day audio nerd perspective, they're pretty
4: cool. The only ones that got those were the reps that went out in the field and there's only two or three that got a set to show people. Nobody liked them. They thought they were cheesy and crummy looking. And I called the guy probably 30 years after he designed and built these, the engineer, and he said, oh God, I didn't, I thought this was over. He designed this and nobody, they just didn't buy them. So he took them all home, threw them in the river behind his house in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And uh, there's, I doubt if there's more than two or three sets of these anywhere.
3: Naturally, with a collection as comprehensive as Bob's, he gets a lot of offers for certain microphones and collectors looking to trade. However, he's not keen on parting with pieces of his collection.
4: I don't sell any mics out of the collection, though. No. But I do have spare mics occasionally I will sell, but the better ones I hang on to for trading stock, you know. And I've got some pretty good mics a lot of people would like. And uh, I said, oh, you know, find this one and, and you make an even trade for it, you know. And it's probably worth less than what I'm offering them, but I've never found it, so it's worth it to me.
3: Not only that, if you ask him if he'll loan one of his mics, even for a fee... He'll probably say no to that too. He does have some extra microphones that he'll rent out, but nothing from his permanent collection will leave the museum. He once had a bad
2: experience with loaning pieces of his collection. We'll avoid using the guy's name just to be on the safe side, but Bob would probably be willing to let you know about it if you asked him in person. Just know he's a very famous and well-respected movie director.
4: I rented him some mics and he wouldn't give them back. He said, well, you said they're worth this much more. Let me pay you for them. I said, no, I don't want the money. I said, I want the mics back because they're too hard to find. Well, we went around for a year or so, and then I thought, well, if I try to fight them, the only people I'm going to make money are the lawyers. So I sold them for that. But it took me about eight, nine years to find the ones I had rented them because it was like 16 mics.
2: While making the movie, He wanted the sounds of the microphones to match the recordings from the era that they were made. However, the mics actually sound fine. It was the radio, recording, and home audio equipment and their fidelity issues before the 1940s that people associate with the period of recordings.
4: And he, at the time, wanted microphones of that era. And I said, well, you got this mixed up. All the stuff I'm giving you is pretty high-quality stuff. And I said, we were way ahead of the game back in the 20s and 30s, so I said, they're not gonna sound like you think. He, said he wanted all that, you know, all the distortion and noise and everything. But he had to hire an acoustical engineer to do that for him and EQ everything and add noise and so on, you know.
2: We thought it would be fun to test Bob's knowledge with something that Craig had at home he brought in a mic that he owns to learn more about it.
3: This is uh, actually a gift I got for uh, Christmas a few years ago from my dad. Mm-hmm. He knew that I loved radio and then it was a little bit after I'd started. So I'm just kind of curious if you know a little bit about it, you know, kind of. The first
4: place you're a telephone base. Yeah. This belongs on a, there's another piece that goes under here that's felt lined and it's from a telephone, a uh, candlestick telephone. But this is a crystal microphone. Have you used it at all? No, no, I've never used it. It'll be high impedance, so you have to plug it into like a guitar amp or something. Because nobody has high impedance anymore.
3: So I asked him when it was made.
4: I'd say in the 40s, probably. 40s or later 40s. Yeah.
3: I then asked if he had one like it in his collection, and without missing a beat, he responded. Should be right
4: up at the top shelf there. Look along the top shelf somewhere. Oh, yeah, right
3: there. See if it matches up, yeah. <laughs> Pretty much exactly the same. A room
2: full of over a thousand microphones and he knows exactly where each one is. Then he said the words George and I didn't expect to hear.
4: Let's let's go check and see if it works.
2: So we walked out to his workbench, which was covered in tools and microphone parts with a wall full of cables. We watched him essentially hotwire the mic to see if it worked.
4: Hello, hello, testing one, two. One, two, three, four. Hello, hello. That works.
3: (laughs) I have to admit, it was pretty cool hearing my mic work for the first time. I've had it for
2: a few years, but never actually plugged it in to test it out or record anything. That was until we got home. Remember when Bob said that the old mics sound good, but the recordings aren't the greatest? Well, here's Craig on a digital recorder he bought in 2006. Testing one, two, three. Hello, my name is Craig. (laughs) And here he is on his old mic. All right. Hello. And here's Craig again. Modern Craig, that is. Yep, it's me on a modern microphone. And here's Craig from the 1950s.
3: I feel like I should be singing the Chattanooga choo-choo into this thing.
2: Sure, there's a little hiss and the sound is a bit tinnier than his new microphone is, but still, it's pretty good. I found out that a lot of blues harmonica players like
3: this type of microphone because it emphasizes certain frequencies and makes their performances sound a little bit more dirty and to think that it was made in the 1950s, a time when the United States was impacted by racial segregation, the Red Scare, and the Korean War, but was nonetheless thriving with technology and forethought as we looked to the sky and began our exploration of space. In Latin, microphone literally translates to small sound, which is not only incorrect, but seems to not give it enough credit. The microphone is truly one of the cornerstones of media, and we have more to thank it for than simply entertainment. Without the microphone, Roosevelt never would have been able to give his fireside chats. Bell would never have been able to call Watson in March of 1876. And of course, George
2: and I wouldn't be sharing any of this with you today. The Bombaquette Microphone Museum isn't just a display of antiquated technology. It's a time capsule that documents the stages of technological progress but it's also a place to learn where everything we've grown accustomed to originates from. Every model of microphone on display has a story, and it played some role in our shared cultural history. And Bob himself? Well, he's the curator and the genius behind an outstanding collection. There are collectors, and then there are guys like Bob. He doesn't just collect, he's more of a scholar when it comes to microphones. He just wants to share that appreciation, knowledge, and passion with the world and enjoys being able to see people's faces light up as they look at his thousands of microphones. Who knew that just down the road from central Milwaukee, there's a kind man with a -a one-of-a-kind museum.
4: I I still look at it like I've always been. I'm just a regular guy and that's it. And, you know, I have a lot of information and that's fine. I can help people out with it, but I, I don't look any beyond that, so. It's uh, a lot of people, when they get a hold of me, finally they'll say, "Well, you're the guru on microphones I hear. Can you tell me about this? You know So I probably got that reputation across the country, but it wasn't designed to be that way. I just enjoyed doing it and I'd like to see people learn about it, you know. Because I, when I that was the first thing I liked about the whole business too, was the microphones and how they worked and what they did and so on.
0: That was Everything Sounds, co-hosted and produced by George Drake Jr. and Craig Shank. See pictures of the Microphone Museum, hear more episodes of Everything Sounds, and find out how to subscribe to their podcast at everythingsounds.org. You've been listening to the Third Coast Podcast. Stay connected with us through Facebook and Twitter, or by signing up for our email list at thirdcoastfestival.org. If you like what you heard today, consider writing us a review on iTunes or sending us a few bucks. As always, thanks for listening.